Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, welcome to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, where we share evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to inform your practice. I'm excited today to be speaking with behavioral scientist Dr. Igor Grossman for a discussion on wisdom versus intelligence and exploring this interplay between social and cultural factors and how those things impact our emotional regulation in the face of all of our daily stressors, as well as how we respond in interpersonal conflicts. I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Grossman when I was researching the last chapter of my book, Peak, on leadership, and I found this area of wisdom versus intelligence and wise reasoning to be a really, really fascinating area at the performance level, but also at the clinical level, seeing patients and, and frankly, in life in general. And so in this episode, Dr. Grossman is going to define intelligence and wisdom for us and share some of the characteristics of wise reasoning. He'll talk about his work and how social class may predict the ability of a person to reason wisely, and how uncertain environments can drive changes in our decision-making. He'll also touch on today's social media world and how that impacts things like self-reliance and narcissism, how wise reasoning can cultivate performance in sport as well as providing some strategies for cultivating more wise reasoning in our own day-to-day lives. Terrific. As usual, you can find the links and the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested in more on the topic of mindset, then you can circle back and check out season two, episode number 35 with sports psychologist, Dr. Peter Jensen on energy management and the champion's mindset as well as season three, episode number five with Dr. Fergus Connolly on winning habits, adaptability, and 59 lessons. Terrific. Well, before we get rolling here, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport's the world's only 100% natural supplement. Totem Sport is the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on ocean mineral water is ramping up. A recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. You can use the promo code BUBS10, B-U-B-B-S-10, at checkout and save 10% at totemsport.com and defy the norm. All right, let's do this. Season 3, Episode 24. Enjoy. Igor, thanks so much for carving out some time today. Thank you so much for having me. Terrific. Well, Igor, can you uh, kick off our conversation here today by telling listeners a little more about your background and how you got into your work as a uh, behavioral scientist? Well, I, I grew up in different parts of the world, and I guess... Uh, I first moved from uh, the former Soviet Union from Ukraine to Germany. And uh, 
And I was wondering, why do people behave differently than I do? And uh, why do they care about other things than I do? And so sort of that motivated me, I guess, from a very early age to start thinking about the human minds. I kind of always had that inclination, I guess, even back in Ukraine, but uh, that became sort of more salient in Germany. And then I moved to the U.S. and then I moved to Canada. So now I study wow. people's behaviors and uh, and their minds. And a part of it is just driven by my history and part just by natural curiosity. I mean, it's it's a fascinating topic and, and seemingly very topical at the moment with with social media and, and how we communicate today and the various different things happening in the world on sort of a geopolitical level as well and the, the way the conversations flow on that side of things. But you know, before we discuss any of that, can you start by telling listeners um, you know, your work around social class and wise reasoning and interpersonal conflicts? Obviously very fascinating. Can we maybe start with what is intelligence and how is that typically measured? Well, typically intelligence is uh, construed, or like people think about it as a, some kind of mental, general mental ability, sort of uh, you know, the raw force that helps you to uh, think through difficult situations. The problem is that uh, the way it's actually measured uh, is uh, not quite capturing that. So what's, what's normally measured is your verbal ability, how well are you able to articulate yourself, how many words do you know, how quick are you at uh, capturing and efficient are you at capturing different patterns in the environments we presented with sort of uh, uh, little tests in which you have to identify a missing piece, like the one of those puzzles that some of you probably know. Mm -hmm. And uh, those type of abilities, uh, they, uh, they, they, they have a historical reasons. Uh, the reason why uh, uh, researchers started looking at them is uh, that intelligence research emerged in the context of uh, testing uh, school abilities, um, first in France and then in North America, and then to identify actually um, people from, to some extent, uh, covertly, people of uh, low class, uh, uh, blue color, and uh, people uh, who have high education. And sort of some of the earlier proponents of intelligence research in the United States in Canada have been um, uh, pretty much on the mission of uh, social engineering and uh, they were writing about how you uh, we probably should just uh, uh, get rid of the uh, undesirable, uh, uh, less uh, intelligent populations and less intelligence, like those who cannot verbalize themselves as eloquently uh, or uh, who don't have this type of analytical force of identifying patterns on some abstract tasks. So it's very much focused on this abstraction, um, very much focused on your ability to you know, if you read if you read New York Times, or the Globe and Mail in Canada, or the Guardian, on a regular basis, you'll be scoring high on those intelligence tests. But uh, that doesn't really capture the full um, gist of what the construct in general is about, which is often referred to as some kind of a raw ability to process information in an efficient uh, and superior and efficient way. And Igor, yeah, I mean, what's not captured when we talk about these standard measures of intelligence? Well, uh, quite often these measures focus on, as I said, like the ability to process information very fast, very efficient. Uh, but uh, they also 
a priori uh, try to make you think abstractly. And sort of the form, focus on this type of abstract thinking is obviously very important that we cannot get away without it. And in school, we are taught to do that. And if, as, as a consequence of that, uh, uh, schooling tends to improve your intelligence over time uh, in some circumstances. Mm-hmm. But what is not captured is uh, the other feature of uh, what we need in everyday life. So quite often, uh, we don't have to think abstractly, but we have to be very concrete about the situation at hand. Or uh, there may not be a clear-cut solution to the problem. And we have to adjudicate. We have to sort of figure out what to do in this situation. We have to balance different things. And that is not captured in intelligence uh, measures at all because uh, they, uh, if it is about abstract thinking, uh, they automatically assume that there is a right or wrong solution. And in most situations in our everyday life, there is no right or wrong solution. I mean, there is probably a right solution how to ride a bike. But if you're in a conflict with somebody, and you have your position, the other person is their position. And, uh, you know, you have to come to some kind of an agreement. No IQ test, intelligence, uh, a classic intelligence test, will be able to predict whether you will be able to better listen to other person or not. In fact, if anything, research has shown that under some circumstances, those people who are uh, better on those intelligence tests actually perform worse on uh, resolving interpersonal conflicts because they can come up with all sorts of arguments to support their position. Um, and these arguments may be still wrong um, or because, you know, if you're just smart, you can come up with all sorts of reasons why you're right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make you right if you just come up with the arguments uh, because if your point is to just defend yourself, the arguments may be just deceiving. But at the end, you also may be deceiving yourself because there is this idea of, uh, confirmation bias. The more arguments you come up with, the more you believe that you're right. So ironically, the smart people may be more likely uh, to be biased and uh, to not work towards sort of solving interpersonal issues. Um, and quite often we see that, you know, very, very smart people make interpersonally very, very foolish decisions. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. And, uh, you know, I want to dive into your research around intelligence versus wise reasoning. But maybe before we do, could you, you know, perhaps loosely define or define wisdom? You know, what is wisdom? I know it's a maybe a bit of a loaded term and quite a big umbrella there, but could you right. give us a bit of a definition? Well, wisdom uh, quite often refers either to some kind of ability to um, make sense of the situation and make a sound decision uh, to uh, uh, with the notion of some kind of a good judgment. Uh, other times, wisdom is associated with a sort of like a, a being content and a balanced uh, about who one is, uh, how to live one's life, like when you look back at yourself. So in my work, I uh, focus on the former uh, definition, so, so thinking more about how people make decisions and try to identify the sort of notion of uh, uh, good judgment and sound judgment in everyday life, especially in the context of this kind of ill-defined uh, complex situations where there is no right or wrong solution. Um, so that's maybe what distinguishes wisdom or how in many societies, when people talk about wisdom, they think about this kind of complex issues. They don't have a clear-cut uh, solution that can be solved by a simple algorithm. And amongst that, you know, in terms of wise reasoning in, in these interpersonal conflicts, what are some of the central aspects of wise reasoning? 
so the notion of wise reasoning, so this necessary for solving this uh, kind of uh, ill-defined complex situations where there is no clear-cut solution, um, is based on the idea that uh, what can really help you is to think through uh, the complexities and uh, perspectives of different stakeholders, recognize that maybe you don't know everything about the situation at hand quite often, especially if it's a complex situation, we don't possess all the information. And our spontaneous tendency uh, very often is to uh, focus on ourselves. And like say, me, 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 like, and, uh, and you, because you bring in already some certain perspective, but to go beyond that perspective, to recognize your humility, uh, intellectually speaking, just like that you don't know everything, uh, to consider the perspectives of other people, to consider how the situation may unfold and it, that there are multiple ways the situation may unfold, and to try to reconcile these different perspectives, yours, others, to balance it out, realizing that it may not lead to a benefit to a, of a single person, but will be somewhere in the middle. Those are the key features of uh, sort of wise reasoning have been featured in various philosophical traditions uh, from uh, East Asia, from South Asia, as well as uh, in the Western philosophical canon. Absolutely. And, you know, your work on intelligence versus wise reasoning, the study uh, that you'd done with uh, Justin Brienza, could you walk through um, the study set up with folks and some of the key findings that you uncovered? Um, so the work on wise reasoning and intelligence started actually even before that, Mark. Uh, it started uh, when I first started looking at the relationship to uh, well-being and happiness, so like how satisfied are people with their lives, because the idea there was that uh, you know intelligent people are not necessarily happier. In fact, there are at least as many who are miserable. Uh, so intelligence does make you happy, but I mean, supposedly good judgment and uh, make, be able to make good decisions supposed to make you happy. So what's going on there? And so yeah. that's why I started looking at the wise reasoning features. Um, so that was the first step, sort of like try to differentiate and contrast uh, wise reasoning and IQ, the way how intelligence normally measured, with respect to this critical feature, subjective well-being, interpersonal relations. So I studied that. For quite a while. With uh, Justin Brianza, uh, who's uh, one of the terrific students of mine who recently graduated, uh, we look specifically at the relationship of uh, wise reasoning uh, and intelligence to some extent uh, across a different strata in the population, among people who have high education versus don't have high education, as well as among people from different regions in the United States, uh, uh, more affluent regions and less affluent regions. And uh, essentially, uh, we had a set of studies. Uh, in one study, for instance, we asked people to think about the most recent conflict they had with somebody and uh, work through the experience and reconstruct this experience, recall the details of this experience, and afterwards asked people to reflect on it and uh, looked at the qualities uh, of their reflection. So do they recognize that they need more information? Uh, do they consider taking perspectives of other people? Uh, do they, are they willing to compromise? Uh, so those features of what I described as wise reasoning. And um, it turns out that uh, you know, there were some uh, interesting uh, regional differences and individual differences, and they were going in different direction than you would expect from the classic intelligence research. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely something that I don't think 
people intuitively would think, you know, that the higher your social class, the less likely you are to to reason wisely. Right. Yeah, so that those were the, some of the findings, and we find that both uh, it's not a huge effect. I'm not, and I want to emphasize that it's also a local effect. What that means is that, um, uh, and, and that's by by the way is revealing uh, to some extent why that may be happening. So we can just speculate, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, um, the reason uh, it may be happening is uh, that uh, if you live in the environment in which a lot of things are uncertain and in which you need to, to some extent, cooperate with others uh, because uh, you will not be able to manage things on your own, uh, then you start developing this uh, reasoning st- uh, strategies of perspective taking, of recognizing limits of uh, yourself and uh, recognizing the uncertainty there is in the world. More if, uh, as compared to if you live in an environment in which everything is uh, prepared, you live in your um, single detached uh, somewhere in the suburbs, uh, you have one or two cars, uh, the college uh, for kids is paid off, uh, and you can uh, just uh, uh, plan for the future. And uh, there is, not, there is of course, always uncertainty, but it's, it's much less than you. Um, and, and what you educate your, uh, your kids to do also is very different. Instead of uh, focusing on maybe other people, you are, you teach them that they are the best, that they, are the lead, they will be the next leaders, the next president of the United States if you want. <laughs> and sort of the mantra that you have for uh, education also in the uh, middle class, America and Canada to some extent, is very different. Uh, what we teach our kids than uh, what uh, maybe blue-collar parents teach their kids, if they have time to teach their kids in the first place. And bottom line is that uh, if you live in this kind of more uncertain, ecologically uncertain environment uh, that is associated with um, uh, people from uh, uh, less uh, educated, uh, lower-income strata, then um, that by itself forces you to both cooperate with others and uh, to think about different, maybe undesirable alternatives about the future. And those, those processes force you to uh, develop this wise reasoning. Now, the issue here, and that's why it's important, to, and I would like to emphasize that, For sure. is that it's local, it's specific to the interpersonal domain, mm-hmm. and uh, you, know, you can still uh, have absolutely no difference, so it may go a completely different direction. Let's say if you think about it, the group, questions or political decision making or something else. Uh, so what I'm emphasizing, it's specific to uh, the uh, reasoning about the interpersonal issues in their own lives. And from an evolutionary perspective, Igor, I mean, that seems to make sense in terms of this idea of being in an environment where the future is uncertain, where you right. might be working multiple jobs to pay the bills, you might not be getting as much sleep as you'd like, you're you know, shuffling the kids off to school and to other events through friends or nannies or whomever else who needs to be some sort of teamwork involved here. And you, you don't have the, uh, as you mentioned, you don't have the luxury of, of really planning for the future. Is this, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, if environments are more, you know, I don't know what the right term is, threatening or there's more um, stress in them, is that, is that a natural or an evolutionary reaction to have that sort of effect, would you say? 
it's possible. I mean, uh, as often with evolutionary ideas, uh, we can only speculate about some of them. Mm-hmm. We need to, to consider it in a much longer uh, uh, term perspective. Um, but uh, what we know from uh, uh, prior studies of evolution as well as ecology is that uh, human minds are incredibly adaptive. Uh, depending on the situation, uh, we can really develop different strategies from very early on how to make sense, uh, how to effectively live in that situation. It doesn't take many generations to do that for humans. So, yeah, so from this perspective, uh, this kind of adaptation of what processes to focus on. So, for instance, why would it make sense for a person in a low-income environment where there is so much uncertainty to do well on so-called self-regulation tasks. So one common finding is that uh, uh, kids from uh, low-income environments in North America, um, instead of waiting for two cookies, they will want to rather take one cookie now. And Mm -hmm. so it's like, you know, it's like you can either have one cookie now or you can wait a little bit and then you can get two cookies later. And they're taking one cooking. And that's a test of self-regulation or marshmallow or whatever you want to call it. Yep. Uh, that uh, marshmallow test. Instead of uh, one marshmallow, now you can have two marshmallows later. So why is that happening? Well, if you live in the environment in which you everything is highly uncertain, then you don't know if you'll get those two cookies later. And so you better like live it now, live it to the fullest. Uh, planning for the future is futile because realistically, and in fact, to some extent, uh, certainly in the U.S., that's not as much the case in Canada uh, and definitely not in Europe, but in the U.S. that is true that they are objectively right not to plan for the future because the society doesn't provide them with resources necessary to really, uh, um, um, you know, uh, grow and maybe get a better job and maybe get higher education. How can they if the tuition fees are so high? So bottom line is, um, from that perspective, some of those processes that are considered to be maladaptive, so they are not regulating themselves that well, apparently, uh, could be also construed as evolutionary adaptive. Uh, They just do what you would do in an uncertain environment, similar to how many other animals would do it. So like for other animals, we also know that uh, when the uh, ecology is uh, uncertain and high risk, uh, they choose different strategies than if the ecology is relaxed and, uh, you know, you can, uh, you don't have to worry about the predator or you don't have to worry about the scarcity of resources. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating, and that um, you know, from a medical side as well, we see in lower income areas, you know, worse health compared to to higher income areas. And one of the classic examples is in in London in the UK. You can sort of go from one side of the city to the other, and I think the average life expectancy jumps by about a decade. And you know, the notion around you know trying to convey dietary practices or reduction of alcohol or reduction of smoking, and oftentimes. You know, docs will wonder, you know, why can't my client or patient just do this thing? This is the right solution, and yet they choose not to do it. And that notion around, as you mentioned, sort of just thinking in the short term of, geez, it's been a hard week. I just want to have a, you know, unfortunately have a beer or two beers or whatever it might be. And they're, they're really, um, so we, we don't seem to be tackling the root of the problem if we're, if we're avoiding this whole idea of environment and, and safety, would you say? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the, the what I would like to emphasize is that, uh, you know, the this idea of that in some aspects, they may actually be uh, more 
adapt to this type of environment, to the uncertainty, uh, than uh, middle class or people who have high education, well, uh, who are well off, uh, uh, is that this type of uh, reasoning uh, is actually maybe potentially more beneficial for thinking through problems instead of constantly uh, thinking about the limitations and weaknesses. Uh, so we like we can capitalize on these environments. We can potentially think about like, hey, so like in this environment they can really do this better. So maybe we can frame this message about how to reduce alcohol, not in terms of long-term benefits, but maybe in terms of interpersonal benefits. Or maybe we can focus, how about focusing on the actual root of a problem? So there are no jobs and there is no support for these people. Like there are structural problems that may need to be addressed. Instead of saying, hey, it's just because you, you suck because you, your self-regulation is so bad. Or you suck because you just can't control yourself. Uh, you just should be learning to control yourself better. So instead of internalizing it, sometimes it is about structural forces. And, uh, and we see that in those countries in Europe, uh, like in Scandinavia, where there is more structural support, people of uh, a low-income background do much, much better. And uh, their health is not as uh, much impacted as in the UK or in North America. Yeah, and another aspect of this story as well, which um, you know you touch on in your work, is the idea of in this interpersonal conflict, if one of the individuals believes themselves or is of a higher social class than the other, then that actually impacts you know their ability to be reasoning wisely within that framework that seems to even on that medical example seems to impact again how well the clinician or doc would put themselves in the shoes of the patient rather than just sort of giving the advice that is quote unquote the best advice to give can you comment around that yeah well yes i mean i'm i'm not sure we i could directly speak to the medical station that's something that we haven't tested yet so i mean i would be a bit hesitant to generalize here but um, the idea is that if you think you have a conflict with somebody whom you perceive to have much more power or higher status than you, um, then uh, you, by default, uh, would probably be a bit more vigilant, a bit more careful, and uh, you you would feel the uncertainty uh, a bit more than if you are in a role where you are the supervisor or where you are uh, somebody uh, who is in charge of other people. So you don't have to have that level of vigilance. I mean, which is ironic because, <laughs> I mean, after all, if you're in a sort of leadership position or you're in charge of other people, you have a greater power. So for instance, you're a doctor and you're talking to a patient. Of course, that's where wisdom is needed most. Mm -hmm. um, and yet... In those situations, it, it seems to be that people are kind of blind uh, to the contextual information. They just like tend to shut it slightly off and uh, focus mostly on their own perspective. It's funny because I actually saw a, um, a study coming out around AI and how the ability of AI to be able to diagnose a lot of things meant that potentially in the near future, a lot of medical schools will be shifting all the focus to bedside manner with the patient because AI will be able to diagnose things so accurately. But uh, anyway, time will tell on that side of things. But if we shift gears here a little bit, right. Igor, and, and talk about today's world of, you know, today's social media world, we see individualism on the rise, which, you know, typically translates to things like greater self-reliance, but also, as you note, you know, it's, it also tends to lead to greater narcissism. 
Um, and so, you know, around this wise reasoning, we have people obviously on you know, Instagram or taking photos of themselves, posting, you know, this generation obviously very different from generations past in that sense. So when we look at, you know, intelligence is on the rise, which is terrific, but how can we not sacrifice this ability to communicate uh, effectively and to reason wisely amongst uh, groups? That's a very good question. And if I knew the answer to that question, <laughs> yeah. I would probably not be on the podcast. But uh, um, no, but uh, jokes aside, I think uh, the issues here are structural uh, and it, it is very scary. I mean, because the world we live in today, uh, we do glorify uh, this hyper-individualism. Just think about the influencers on social media. Um, I yet have to find an influencer who is influencing because of their hyper-social, self-sacrificial nature. Most of them are the epitomes of this kind of narcissism and individualism one way or another. They're incredibly unique individuals. That's the whole point of being an influencer, I guess. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have quite a bit of that. Um, and we glorify that. And as long as we continue glorifying those features instead of... I mean, it's it's weird because uh, when you think about it, would you want to glorify somebody who's really balanced and moderate and who's <laughs> not really emphasizing that they're really good? So like, think about it. It's almost like the opposite of... Uh, one of those quotes by the current U.S. president where he was once asked, uh, I think, last year, two years ago, or maybe it was before the election, uh, uh, if he is humble. And he just said that I'm the most humble person. You know, you have no idea. how You can't even comprehend how humble I am. <laughs> and I was like, really? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, so, uh, right. So, so if somebody then uh, does... Act and uh, if you want to emphasize uh, humility, uh, especially interpersonal humility, not jumping to conclusions immediately, reaching across the currently uh, topics uh, of uh, great interest, political aisles, those people are not uh, striking one as sort of uh, most exciting. And we live in the time of sort of attention economy where it's all about excitement. It's about grabbing somebody's attention uh, for a few seconds. So I don't know quite know what to do about this. Uh, I do think that uh, just a general shift in the dialogue from a uh, uh, dialogue that emphasizes uh, uh, excellence and remarkable abilities in something um, um, that is like singular, uh, uh, either be it intelligence or be it a particular type of sports or something else uh, uh, towards a more sort of holistic picture uh, where you would think about, uh, you know, not uh, not how wonderful you were because you did X, but instead of that, uh, um, about, uh, you know, like a balance of multiple factors, uh, maybe one way to, uh, to go about this. The other thing is just to have a more healthy discourse, either through podcasts like this one or other means uh, where uh, we would not just write about uh, influencers and uh, President Trump or whatnot, uh, uh, who are clearly remarkable in their own, and unique in their own ways, for better or for worse. Um but also talk about stories of people who 
uh, did potentially make sacrifices uh, for the benefit of others and talk about those who did show some uncertainty and doubt in their life. Well, one big issue that we have today, in addition to this hyper-individualism that goes hand in hand, by the way, is this unwillingness to admit uh, mistakes and to show uncertainty. If you think about medical professionals, in particular, it's almost dangerous, right? Like, I think about what doctor would want to say, well, actually, I don't know what you have. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> just think about that. It's like, I, I yet have to meet a doc uh, uh, whom I will come to and they will, uh, will tell me, you know, I, I don't know what you have. Um, and in many cases, it is a guess, especially if it's a complex disorder, right? Yeah, chronic um, conditions are all disease. complex, right? It's, uh, yeah, it's obviously complex. the best guess of the practitioner, your experience, and uh, for sure. Yeah, but admit to yourself that this is just a guess, and I really need more information. Uh, those are only the best doctors do that, mm -hmm. and only for maybe very threatening dis uh, diseases. So, bottom line is so this type of <clears throat> idea of uh, recognizing your humility and uh, counteracting the ever increasing pressure to be hyper confident and very, very unique, because if you're not unique, then uh, you're not interesting. Um, those are the processes that we somehow have to combat. And um, uh, I think uh, just the general societal discourse on this topic has to shift. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't have a, a clear cut solution uh, to how exactly to do that. Oh, I mean, that's uh, very well said. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on the performance side of things as well. I often hear from you know, in an elite and professional sport from performance staffs that the, the young crop of sports scientists coming out are, you know, incredibly intelligent and able to do things at a younger age than they were never able to do. But one of the uh, shortcomings is this ability to, to sort of communicate their, their findings effectively to sort of integrate with the teams and, uh, or with the hierarchies in terms of relaying the messages to whether it's the lead sports scientist or the, or the manager of the of the squad of the team. And again, that sort of strikes me as this, you know, whether it's a conflict or not, I guess this is another, another um, question, but around relaying information to someone who's of a quote unquote higher social class and how you do that. Or if you have any thoughts around that inability to be able to, uh, to I guess it, you know, really dig very deep with their analysis, but not be able to, to improve in terms of their breadth or their ability to communicate that information. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. How do you nurture this type of uh, consideration of others' perspectives and uh, the ability to integrate and cooperate with them? I mean, I guess uh, in the sport context where it is hyper-personal, where it's about, I mean, your income at some ex to some extent, uh, maybe one way to think about it is if you can uh, emphasize that it's not um, me versus them, but rather it's a sort of a group project. I mm -hmm. mean, it seems so obvious what I'm saying, but uh, it's so easy, especially in the sport competitive context where it is ultimately a me versus them, but it's just accept that it's on the group level, right? Like you constantly compete with somebody else, mm -hmm. either with another sport team and so on and so forth, or if it's individual sport, obviously you compete with others. Um, so there the focus is always on it's zero sum. 
in a sense, like uh, that's a term from economics, mm-hmm. from game theory that means that uh, you view it as uh, somebody will lose, somebody has to lose, and somebody will win. And uh, I think that is, of course, the case when you have groups, teams competing against each other. However, within a team, the process doesn't have to replicate. And in fact, it's uh, uh, to emphasize that you will you will have a greater chance of winning if it is about group performance. So maybe not even focus on winning, but just really focus on having a group coherence. So the goal is not just about uh, winning, not just about showing how good you are, but it's about having fun within your group. Maybe that's something that can help. I mean, of course, it's hard to say that um, when uh, there's a lot of money involved. And (laughs) uh, the money is individual in this case. Uh, But uh, I guess emphasizing that uh, your group will perform even better if you focus on the group instead of if you focus on the individual. And and make people aware of the difference between their group uh, uh, performance on the one hand and... um, some kind of like comp- so that the competition happens on on the level of the group, but not uh, doesn't have to happen in the same way within the group. It's in fact it's detrimental. That could help. I think ultimately it's also about <clears throat> just paying attention to others and maybe putting people who are in um, the other strategy, uh, people people who are more advanced, more mature, in a mentorship position. So like as uh, mentors potentially of younger players mm-hmm. on the same team. Uh, and I think that happens uh, quite often. I mean, either explicitly or uh, indirectly, um, uh, where uh, that that by itself could develop a, a, a sort of awareness of the degree of dependence between the two group members. Uh, and uh, under many circumstances, this dependence can be healthy because it may help you to realize their perspectives and their uh, their concerns instead of just your concerns. Yeah, it's amazing how it tends to be something that sort of happens somewhat organically on the teams that become these sort of great teams of you mentioned having sort of mentors or players taking other players under their wings and these organizations that seem to be able to thrive in this we first and team team culture and you know everyone right. else trying to figure out how to how to find that uh, magical solution but uh, you know if we if we look at on an individual level, you know, the rest of us trying to, you know, sort out conflicts at work and with our family and friends and whatnot, you know, how can we increase our ability to, to reason wisely? Are there any general recommendations to foster better wise reasoning? Well, it's probably too early to, to tell that, um, the one strategy would, that we found uh, to be effective under some the circumstances, and uh, I really uh, should emphasize that we have, it's fairly early on because we haven't tested its uh, application in the real world, uh, just in the context of strict laboratory or experimental conditions outside of the laboratory. But it's, it has been expanded to all sorts of conflicts. Anyways, this aside, this caveat aside, the strategy that seemed to be working the best so far is if you have a conflict with somebody, um, try to take a step back and uh, review it from sort of LeBron James perspective where you start <laughs> talking from a third person about yourself. Nice. Uh, so that does help a little bit. It's a small increment, uh, but if you 
if you want to try this, try this for a week. Just at the end of the day, write yourself a little diary in the third person and see what does it do to you after a few days. If you continue, and it doesn't have to be just about the bad stuff. It can be just, you know, what's the most interesting thing that happened to me today? Or And interesting can be interesting bad, but could also be interesting good. And most of the time, our life is actually pretty good. Oh, just okay. And so write about that from a third-person perspective. So, and uh, that, does have, does ha- that, that does have uh, uh, some... Uh, positive effects. I mean, they are small and incremental, which means you often don't even see them as often we don't see how we change ourselves. But there are some shifts. For instance, we've done this over a course of a month. And when people do it over a course of a month, you compare their wise reasoning before to after, and there are quite uh, substantial shifts. So that's one key strategy that we have identified to be fairly robust. Another strategy is, uh, we already mentioned that, is to uh, develop this type of uh, teams of uh, mentor-mentees that can foster some degree of interdependence in the relationship and uh, promote, uh, to some extent, less uh, selfishness. Um, Selfishness is the key factor uh, for, uh, inhibiting factor for wise reasoning. And so if if you can find ways to reduce the selfishness. Um, and uh, by that, I do not mean just being egocentric in terms of your goals, mm-hmm. but also just a cognitive perspective with which you approach the world. So quite often, we can be very much interested in helping others. But our initial perspective is always, well, first person perspective, we start with me and then mm-hmm. the rest of the world. And quite often, um, that can be uh, detrimental for your reasoning, because you never really get to seeing the other parts of the world. You just get stuck with me when you start generating arguments from that perspective. So switching that, maybe sometimes uh, um, uh, try uh, to uh, take the other perspectives f- into account first before you start considering your own, maybe another strategy. But uh, the, those are the later ones are more speculative right now. Uh, where we do have uh, clearest evidence is uh, this kind of writing in a third person about yourself. That's terrific. It's great to have some suggestions there of evidence-based strategies. And as you mentioned, it's interesting to see how consistency, whether we talk training, nutrition, that doing this as a regular practice really starts to uh, develop those skills. And and Igor, if we sort of zoom back out to 30,000 feet here, and you mentioned at the start how wise reasoning is is help more helpful in, in these complex situations where problems you know the solutions aren't so obvious and you know in, in medicine and in training if you're a physio you know nutrition even all these things there's right there's no one clear answer there's lots of you know different ways of doing it and there you know the outcomes are mixed between between clients and people some people have tremendous results other people we need to continue to problem solve so could you talk a a bit more again and, and round off this discussion around the the value of, of the wise reasoning in these complex solving complex problems well one of the key values of wise reasoning is that it allows you to go beyond finding a single algorithmic solution to an issue um, quite often we don't have those type of uh, so uh, the, the the type of situations we encounter in everyday life don't lead themselves to have a one clear cut solution. 
quite often we just don't know all the parameters that may be involved, all the uh, perspectives uh, of other people, or in the medical or uh, sort of performance context, all the features of an individual that may be relevant for making them perform better. Um, uh, and what wise reasoning does is it helps you to go beyond just thinking about one solution to a perspective where you try to integrate multiple uh, considerations, be it, you know, what is best for the individual, what is best for the group, or what is best for a husband, what is best for a wife, uh, what is best for um, my uh, own performance, and what is best for my group's performance. And uh, in that sense, it uh, goes beyond just uh, something that where the algorithm would say just me, 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 or group, group, group. Uh, uh, wise reasoning would say would try to find some kind of a balance in between those. And in the way it does it, it helps you to pay more attention to the situation at hand, something that we often are uh, having sort of a blind spot for. We don't really see the situation as much as we should uh, because if you put, put too much attention to every single situation in our lives, uh, we would not be able to function normally. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, but like we, we, we are misers. We often just uh, try to find the best uh, heuristic solution. And uh, what wise reasoning does, it's, sort of, it's an antidote to that. It, it uh, forces you to slow down and deliberately think through, well, maybe there are some features of the situation that are worth considering instead of just taking some rules of thumb. And uh, that, in a way, can be beneficial for the larger group and for the person, but you may not even see it immediately. Igor, that's tremendous, uh, fantastic insights here. And you know, before we wrap up, I want to respect your time. You know, what what do you think the evolution of the research is in this area then in the next sort of five or ten years? Oh, well, that uh, I think we're in a very exciting period where we just started looking at this type of questions of. Uh, uh, what is wisdom and how can we measure it? For thousands of years, we talked about the concept uh, uh, in every serious society uh, that you can think of or that survived for more than a uh, hundred years had some ideas about what wisdom is. But only in the last 10, 15 years, we started to measure it re for real in psychology, where we have now some instruments that can um, help us identify individual differences, help us to identify how can we improve it in everyday life as we just talked about. And so I think in the next five to 10 years, we'll be working on this trajectory and who knows what we'll bring. I mean, it will be very foolish of me to present you with one perspective on how <laughs> this research will unfold. Uh, but I do think that we'll probably have a, a, a greater focus on uh, identifying different situations under which uh, wisdom may be adaptive and maybe hopefully we can convince the more general population uh, instead of just a group of a small group of scientists that focusing on this qualities instead of just on IQ instead of just on some uniqueness features can be beneficial for the society at large and that we can all uh, need uh, and uh, um, uh, we, we can all use some wisdom in our lives. Amen, 100% there. I think I could use a little more as well. And uh, Igor, I definitely appreciate you taking the time today. Where can people keep up with all your tremendous research and uh, keep up with what you're up to? 
so um, you can definitely follow me on Twitter. Uh, I am uh, Sai Wisdom. Uh, just uh, the, the toggle Sai Wisdom is that's me. Uh, um, uh, PSI and wisdom as one word. And otherwise, they can just uh, look up the my lab website at the University of Waterloo, Wisdom and Culture Lab. If you Google that, uh, you will find more about our work and uh, our uh, publications. And finally, we, um, me and actually a colleague from London, UK, have a podcast which is called onwisdompodcast.com. Uh, uh, on Wisdom Podcast as one word, uh, where we also try to uh, digest some of these complex matters for uh, general audience. Fantastic. We'll definitely include those links in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. And Igor, thanks again for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast. If you enjoy the content, Please consider subscribing on iTunes, YouTube, or your favorite podcasting platform. Show your support, and it's also a tremendous help to the show and helps us to continue to attract high-quality guests. If you haven't heard, my new book, Peak, The New Science of Athletic Performance that is Revolutionizing Sports, is out. And I'm pleased to announce we actually hit the Amazon bestseller list in Canada and in the U.S. in sports medicine physical medicine and rehab and holistic medicine categories. So you can find out more info on that and the expert insights at athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org. And of course, you can pick up a copy on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Chapters Indigo, Waterstones, or your local book sellers. Awesome. If you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, you can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at DrBubs. And thanks again, folks, for listening, and we'll see you all next week with more expert insights. The Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcasts.